This is The Loaf Podcast. Welcome back to The Bakery, everyone, where we break bread with the world's finest. Today, we're very lucky to be here with Dr. Joe Dispenza. To the scientific community, he's an adventurous and paradigm-breaking mystic. And to the mystical mysticist community, he's a rigorous scientist who's bringing credibility to their field. But most importantly, to his followers and to the people who follow his ideas, he's somebody who's immensely helping millions of people around the world. Dr. Joe, thank you so much for being here with us today. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you guys. How are you doing today? All good? Very good. Very good. What do you guys want to talk about? Well, we've we got quite a lot of things we want to get into with you. Um, the first thing that we like to ask all of our guests, as you know, with a Loaf podcast, it's a little icebreaker. You get to know people quite well, is what is your favorite bread? Just before we get into anything more serious. Wow, sourdough, no doubt. Mm, we that get that is one a lot. actually... That is actually probably 85% of responses, I'd say. It's quite funny. Really? <laughs> and and I have people in my life that, are, that, are, that really take pride in being experts. So, <laughs> so I get to eat mm -hmm. good sourdough. Great. Um, we just wanted to also have a second icebreaker here because we were reading up on your work, doing a lot of research and reading your book. And obviously what struck us a lot is this idea of attracting a future for oneself. And we were wondering if you could attract... For yourself a future to be or look like any celebrity what would that be <laughs> or would that just Me be personally yourself? gosh i'm so yeah. happy with who i am i'm i really don't never think about that yeah. so okay i'm pretty happy with me so you yeah okay that's probably the best answer you could give um and it's proof that something is working so i just wanted to get in um and for everybody who's currently listening live a little bit of a story about why i wanted to have you on the podcast so badly um, and that's that your work really helped somebody really close to me, my sister. Um, so I'd just like to tell the little story quickly, if that's okay. She this all started when she was about 14. She fell pretty ill. Um, she had these really intense pains in her gut, uh, you know, every six months or so, uh, for about five days or so. And then they would go away and it'd be fine. And eventually when she was at university, a few years later, got particularly bad. They took her to the hospital, did a bunch of tests. She had a couple surgeries to remove stones in her bladder, et cetera, but nothing was really helping. And eventually they discovered that she had a tumor in her pancreas, which was really scary. And it was around this time, um, a really close, the mom of a really close friend of hers started telling her about your work and gave her your book from 2012, how to uh, become the best version of yourself. And she started reading. She became immensely inspired by your work. And the thing that she really took away from your practices was this idea of gratitude. No matter how ill she was going in for checks with her tumor, she always had this weird feeling that everything was going to be okay. Doing your meditations, et cetera. She felt grateful for the family she had around her. She felt grateful for how amazing the doctors were. And three days only before the operation, which was now going to be quite serious, they were going to remove effectively her whole digestive system. She got a call from the doctor who couldn't quite believe it, the tumor had completely disappeared. So that's the story of my sister and your work. You know, that's, that's, uh, she's a living example of truth, right? She's the example of taking philosophy, taking theory, taking knowledge, taking information, <clears throat> instead of just having a dinner conversation about it, just doing something with it, right? And to apply it, to personalize it, to initiate that knowledge to, 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 um, uh, to, uh, to embody it in some way means, means that you're going to really see if it's the truth. And it's an interesting thing about gratitude. And we've looked at this pretty closely. You know, when you receive something favorable or you've just received something that you, that, 
that brings you joy or something's happened to you or something's happening to you that that's uh, exciting, you know, or it's a surprise. The emotion from that experience is called gratitude. So the emotional signature of gratitude means that something wonderful just happened to you or something wonderful is happening to you. Now, the body is the unconscious mind. It's so objective that it does not know the difference between the real life experience that's creating that emotion and the emotion that that person can create by thought alone. So the body is believing in that moment that it's living in a favorable environment. Now, according to epigenetics, it's the environment, the information from the environment that begins to select and instruct genes and genes make proteins. And you don't, you don't change the gene, but you change the expression of the gene, right? So when you, when you move from fear or frustration or resentment or impatience or suffering and you change your emotional state, and you begin to feel that emotion ahead of your healing, the body begins to change genetically because it's beginning to believe then in that new environment that life has changed. And if the environment signals the gene and the end product of an experience in the environment is the emotion, she's actually signaling genes ahead of the environment. Keep that up, you can downregulate genes for disease and begin to upregulate genes for health. And that's exactly how the body begins to change. And so uh, most people then will wait for their healing to feel gratitude. And truly in this work, um, if you understand that principle and you assign meaning to the act and feel gratitude, uh, you can begin to make biological changes. And that's exactly what our research shows. Yeah, it's, uh, I really wanna get into the epigenetics and talking about upregulating healthy genes. Just before we do, something I want to touch on about it and about your book, Becoming Supernatural, which I read, one of the things I loved and my sister's story is just one example is how case studies and inspiring stories of individual people is right at the center of it. And telling these almost, supernatural is the perfect world, the perfect word, these almost incredible stories of of healing, uh, insane things. Yeah, you know, Ali, it's so funny because <clears throat> I consider myself a pretty open-minded person. And, you know, there's nothing like a good story. And in, in tradition, before there was internet and before there were TVs and devices and uh, uh, allegory was the way for people to learn, right? And parables and allegory was a great way for people to gain, you know, the, 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 the lesson in the story. So when a person <clears throat> in our event stands on the stage and they are in front of 2,000 people and... They're telling their story about how they were diagnosed with stage four cancer or ALS or eczema or myasthenia gravis or trifacial neuralgia or a spinal cord injury. And um, they change their health condition and you hear the story and you, they tell that story. The entire audience is leaning in because they're looking at truth. They're staring truth right in the face. And that is the four minute mile. That is somebody who broke through a certain level of consciousness or better yet, unconsciousness. And by them telling the story of truth, what happened to them, the entire collective, the entire audience is leaning in and they're listening really closely and they're becoming aware of another possibility that they were unaware of, not just reading about it or, you know, theoretically it's possible, but that person has the scans, you know, they have the blood tests, they have no symptoms, they have no signs, and it's unbelievable. 
And yet once the person uh, tells a story and the collective becomes aware of that new possibility, that's a change in consciousness. And consciousness is awareness, right? So then the collective becomes aware of that possibility. And invariably, someone in the audience with the same health condition or a similar health condition is looking at that person and the person looks no different than them. They're just an average person. They just look like anybody else. And it's no longer a Hollywood version of, of any, you know, a story. This is a real life story. And we only do the best with what we think is available. And if you're unaware of that possibility, you make the same choice. And so the person who hears that story, sees the example, begins to believe that it could actually happen to them. And when you change your belief in what's possible, you start believing in yourself. And when you believe in yourself, you got to believe in possibilities. And when you believe in possibilities, you got to believe in yourself. If you stick with that in an event that says seven-day immersion into transformation and change, by the end of the week, you'll see many people with chronic health conditions, and I mean all kinds of health conditions, uh, begin to emerge as a, a different person. And that's what caused me to become very interested in doing the research to actually look to see what is happening biologically in their brains, in their hearts, in their gene expression, in their blood, in their urine, in their breath, in their breast milk, in their microbiome. You know, we're measuring everything. And the cool thing about it is that the science that we're discovering is actually supporting human transformation. And it's no longer pseudoscience. I can tell you that right now, that, <clears throat> that actually there is a science of transformation and a biology of change. And we're discovering really how powerful we really are. That's, it's fascinating. I watched your interview with Darius, uh, with Stephen Bartlett on Diary of a CEO. I read most of your book and I was curious if you perhaps for our listeners could tell us a little bit more about your journey and, and how you came to these, these beliefs, which are sometimes for me at least hard to believe. And then I heard about Ollie's sister and that story. And and as someone who considers himself a man of science, and I, I, I'm just very fascinated by by your studies and your research, and and yeah, I was wondering if you could maybe expand a little bit on on your journey and how you came to to your specific beliefs. Yeah, I um, uh, at, at at an early age, I was very interested in what I was going to do with my life, and um, I came from a family of uh, uh, my father was an immigrant, you know, and he wanted me to to be successful in life, and <clears throat> he wanted me to be a doctor, you know, and uh, I studied, got the grades, and yet something in me during that time <clears throat> was telling me that something didn't feel right about doing that. Like, uh, and I was just open-minded and I was reading and, um, I just couldn't jump into it. Went to college, you know, went to pre-med and studied pre-med and, and I just got interested in other things. Uh, you know, I started doing things I would never do. I started studying yoga and martial arts and there were just things I just weren't, wasn't, wasn't in my wheelhouse. You know, I played a lot of American uh, sports and this was something completely different. And and then I just started reading about uh, things that interested me. Like um, I wanted to learn without having to, uh, to to take notes. That's really what I was interested in when I was taking 20, 21 credits a semester. And then I started looking into hypnosis. I wanted to hypnotize myself to be able to learn as much as I possibly could while I was in the classroom 
so I could repeat the lecture back by the end of the end of the, the, the lecture and not have to study too much and just read a reference before the test and ace the test and do the things I wanted to do, get my black belt, you know, do all the things that I was interested in doing. And so it took me a little bit of time to just kind of understand what hypnosis was. And then I, I took my college loan uh, without my father knowing it. And I, I, I took a lot of that money and, and went to school uh, in, on the weekends and the evenings and really got uh, went through four really um, great levels of, of the study of hypnosis and became a hypnotherapist. And I was just fascinated <clears throat> in having a clinical practice at an early age in a holistic healing center. Uh, seeing people heal from all kinds of different health conditions, like and and somehow the mind was affecting the body, and I saw people change, like from alcoholic uh, alcoholism to smoking, uh, to uh, PTSD, to bulimia, to you know, all kinds of different things. I just saw the power of the mind right there, and I was fascinated with it. At the same time, when I was driving uh, to graduate school, um, I. I came across a book that was about a yogi and the yogi was doing all kinds of crazy things that just, I couldn't stop thinking about. And these were mystics and these were saints in the Himalayas. And that was nothing like I had been brought up, you know, in conventional religion. So I had this Is kind this of interest. The, um, sorry, I was just asking quickly the, I read in your book the story of the yogi who managed to imprint his hand into a rock. Are we talking about the same thing here? Is no, no, this was uh, Pramahansa Yogananda's book, Autobiography of a Yogi. And so that, that was kind of an, just kind of an, uh, wasn't Milarepa, it was just that interest in all the saints and, and uh, the masters that he talked about. So I had this kind of interest in the subconscious mind. Um, I went uh, uh, a different route than medicine. Uh, it was more holistic. Um, and then I just had this kind of uh, crazy just interest in the Eastern world, which I never really even gave it much thought to. Um, and somehow I just, I grew a lot during that time. And then I got run over by a truck in a triathlon after I had graduated um, uh, chiropractic college and um, broke six vertebrae in my spine. And um, I was never supposed to walk again. And I went from a healthy young 24 uh, year old kid that was, you know, running a practice and super successful to um, possibly never walking again. And the surgery uh, for that procedure is called the Harrington rod surgery. And that's, in my case, they would take off all the back parts of my vertebrae from the base of my neck to the base of my spine and screw in these long stainless steel rods to kind of cantilever the, the compressed vertebrae, the six compressed vertebrae uh, off the spinal cord. So I had bone fragments on my spinal cord. And then I had a neural arch of one vertebrae kind of broken like a pretzel. It snapped and kind of compressed the cord. And so um, I had four opinions and everybody said surgery. And I said, no, I'm not going to do the surgery. And, you know, I think in 1980s, probably before you guys were born, uh, yeah. <laughs> this was not something you said to, a, to, to surgeons, especially the medical director of a very, very popular hospital in San Diego. And um, he thought I had a head injury. I mean, he, they just could not believe I said no. And I just thought, God, everything I read uh, from all these mystics, everything I've seen in hypnosis and all these people, the power of the subconscious mind, the power of the mind, is it possible that my mind can begin to influence my body? And I was laying face down. I wasn't going anywhere. I thought if I'm going to be paralyzed, um, I, might as well, I might as well toss the coin and I might take a risk. And, you know, then that's when you really 
go from the bleachers to the playing field because it's no longer philosophy. Like, yeah. and I didn't find, I didn't know anybody that ever did done this before. I couldn't find anything, but what I did find was I was, I was interested in any information that could point the finger that it was possible. That's all I needed. <clears throat> so I read everything I possibly could read to help me remove any doubt and uh, any disbelief that it was possible. And because I wasn't going anywhere, I wasn't doing anything, I wasn't eating, you know, on restaurants, I wasn't training anymore, I, I couldn't go to my martial arts studio, I couldn't run yoga classes, I couldn't get on my bike, I couldn't do anything. I was basically laying face down, so I just thought, God, there's gotta be a way that the, I can make contact with this intelligence that gives us life, that keeps our heart beating and digesting our food and running, you know, trillions of functions per section in every, a second in every cell of my body. And I thought, I don't know how to heal it, but maybe it does. So I just thought I would just kind of give it a template, a design. And when I was satisfied with what I wanted, I would surrender <clears throat> that that idea, not to that greater mind and ask if it could do the healing for me. And it was really difficult to get my mind to do what I wanted to do during that time, I think, because when you're in crisis and I had to, was facing, you know, should I sell my practice? I'm never going to walk again. Uh, should I sell my home? You know, and, and, and I couldn't get my mind to do what I wanted to do because it was focusing on the worst case scenario all the time. And so it was pretty much a dark night of the soul, but I didn't give up. I spent hours doing it, hours and hours and doing it. If I lost my attention, I'd start from the beginning and I'd start all over again. And then at a certain point, it got easy. <clears throat> and from that point forward, I just started to notice. It took me three hours to do. I was able to do in 45 minutes. And I knew on some level that what I was doing inside of me in my internal process was starting to produce an outcome outside of me in my body. And the moment I saw that correlation where my pain levels went down and my sensory functions started to come back and my motor functions started to change, I knew at that moment that somehow that my mind was actually producing an effect on my body and that's when it changed for me. So, um, and I just, and I just up on my feet in 10 weeks, I was back into my life and they were supposed to put me in a body cast and this whole thing. And, and um, I just made a deal with myself. And that deal was if I ever was able to walk again, I'd spend the rest of my life, you know, studying the mind body connection and mind over matter. And, and that's kind of what I've been doing since, uh, since that point. That's, that's fascinating. And it's an inspiring story. Would you, would you say you were surprised when you realized that you started to get this feeling back or, or did you somehow know the whole time? So I guess my question is, do you need to believe that it's possible for it to become possible? Well, um, I think, I think this is a really important point because we've not, I don't want to just limit this to me. Uh, let's okay. just talk about anybody because it's really the same thing. Um, We've seen people numerous times stand on the stage that were dealing with all kinds of chronic health conditions, you know, serious health conditions. And they said, you know, God, I really believed in this stuff. You know, I really believe the power of the mind. I really believe the mind could heal the body. I saw the testimonials. I saw people heal. I just never believed it could work for me. And that's really a chilling moment because that's the moment you, you really have to show up. <laughs> and that means if you, if you don't believe in it, you really won't do the work, right? You'll just, you'll, you'll say you may believe in it, but you may not really fully believe in it. And so, um, so when you weigh what you know against what you don't know, you got to somehow bridge those two. 
And it's really common for us to doubt when we don't see any type of change, you know, uh, you know, we do the work and all of a sudden there's no change. And then we say it's not possible. Well, um, we're just not that good. Like it's not going to go away in, you know, one meditation or one process. It takes, it takes overcoming that disbelief. And many people in this work that heal from chronic health conditions, I'll ask them, why, why, why did you do your meditations three times in one day? And, and this is because their chemo wasn't working, their radiation wasn't working, the three surgeries didn't work, the drug trial didn't work, the gluten-free diet didn't work, the vegan diet didn't work. Nothing was working. And nothing changes in our life till we change. And so they were doing their meditations three times a day because they started disbelieving again. And they did the work to change that belief again. And, and, they, and they wouldn't get up from that meditation, from their inner work, until they believed again. And if you keep doing that over and over again, um, you start changing your biology. And that's exactly what, what it takes to, to change. So the dark night of the soul then is when you theoretically or you know intellectually say, oh yeah, that's possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then it becomes a different game when you say, is it possible for me? And yeah. so yeah. for me, I had the, I had the, it made sense to me that it was possible. I couldn't find any evidence that anybody that ever did it. You know, I looked everywhere. What is the science behind if it is possible? I couldn't find any science that could support it. Uh, so I had to take a leap and just remember everything that I learned. And now this was really my own personal initiation. I seen it work on, I read all the stories of the masters and the yogis. I saw so many changes in people's personal health right in front of my eyes um, in, 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 the, in the work in hypnosis. And so I, so I thought that there was a possibility that it could happen. But the first six weeks of that process, uh, for the most part, was hell. Uh, it was the dark night of the soul because I, can imagine. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get my mind to do what I wanted it to do. And that bothered me more than anything else. I could not, I kept focusing on what I didn't want to happen instead of what I, what I did want to happen. And it took me an enormous amount of awareness, an enormous amount of energy to not default back to that disbelief. And it's the overcoming of that disbelief and that doubt that opens right. the door for something to, to occur. Right, I think we're lucky, both of us in that sense, that I have, obviously the personal story with my sister, which before I would have heard it from her, you know, I, I growing up, as I say, when I was younger, I was into philosophy, as I said, just before the call. And so I was a, I'm a very skeptical young guy. And thankfully now I have that personal story, you know, to help me get over that barrier. But I think some of the resistance to your views is often from the traditional scientific community when there's so much, so much in pharmacology with, for example, the case of cancer, chemotherapy, you have all these treatments and, and, and that sort of thing. And in that way, there's quite a lot of resistance to it. What would you say to those people who say, are you trying to deny traditional medicine? What would you say to them? Do you think there's a place for both? Oh, absolutely. I, I think medicine is great. I, I, have, no, I have no opinion uh, the, of whether it's good or bad. It, ha it has helped a lot of people. Uh, and it works really, really well, Ali, when you're dealing with acute conditions. You break your arm, you have your appendix rupture, you need a blood transfusion uh, because you have a, a car accident. You know, when you're looking at acute conditions, medicine is just elite when it comes to that. We've really done a great job with it. But when you're looking at chronic health conditions, whether it's uh, type 2 diabetes, 
whether it's uh, high blood pressure, whether it's uh, early stages of immune-mediated conditions, chronic health conditions require a lifestyle change, a behavioral change to make different choices. And the hardest part really about change is making a new choice and not making the same choice that you did the day before. And so then um, if you're truly going to understand that you have a hand in your own personal healing and change, then you, then the process of you making those changes so that whatever type of treatment you're doing will work better for you. Now, there's a whole variation. Some people choose conventional medicine. Some people choose alternative um, um, healthcare. But in the end, the person is working on making the change. And, and that means then that they're, they're doing the work to change. We, they do their meditations to change the way they think, to change the way they act, and to change the way they feel. And how you think, how you act, and how you feel is your personality. And so then that personality that's thinking the same way, feeling the same way, and, and acting the same way has pretty much a certain life that, 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 is, that is equal to that personality. Get a person to stop thinking that way, stop acting that way, stop feeling that way. Given the science of possibility and change, combine the neuroscience with neuroendocrinology, with psychoneuroimmunology, with epigenetics, with electromagnetism, with quantum physics, build a model of understanding and tell them that they're not doomed by their genes, hardwired to be a certain way for the rest of their life. Have them understand what they're doing. Have them understand why they're doing it. If the what and the why gets really clear, the how gets easier. And they can assign meaning to the act. Assign meaning means they're going to put their intention behind it. And when you have that kind of assignment to meaning, you switch on the forebrain, the prefrontal cortex, and it means business. And when the prefrontal cortex switches on, it silences the entire circuitry in the brain that says, this is what you're doing and you want an outcome. And so then the outcome gets greater when you understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. So the person who's then understanding, if I start thinking differently, if I can fire and wire new circuits in my brain, if I can install hardware in there, and if I can keep doing this and I can keep remember to think this way, if I keep installing the circuitry, that'll become the new voice in my head, the new belief. If I start thinking about how I'm going to behave in my life and I rehearse in my mind how I'm going to be in certain circumstances... The research shows you could actually do the same thing. You could prime the brain for that behavior. If you start feeling the emotions that you would love to feel instead of the emotions you don't like to feel and you're thinking differently, you're acting differently and you're feeling differently, then your personality is beginning to change and your biology will change as a result of it. So independent of whatever conventional treatment or unconventional treatment the person is embarking on. Chronic health conditions a lot of times stay the same. And the, the effort to create chemical balance in the body never really changes the chronic health condition. It just mediates it so that the person can function in their life, but the condition still exists. So if the person is ready then to go to that next level and begin to change their lifestyle, change themselves. When they begin to change, their life begins to change. So 
We have data that suggests when people do that, they respond better to any treatment that they decide to do. And, and, and that's the beauty behind it. It's, it's interesting because I, I like the idea of neurons that um, fire together, wire together. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. But I think the idea of really changing habits is something that as university students, we're, we're quite interested in. I'm quite interested in this idea of drinking culture, for example, where you go drinking every night and then you say to yourself, oh, I should be drinking less alcohol, for example. And I, um, I was wondering if you could give advice to university students to change, <laughs> to change, to change their habits. How do, how do you yeah. get that energy? Because you're surrounded uh. by people with this constant peer pressure. And yeah, how do you, how do you change that? Yeah, as I said earlier, um, because the hardest part about breaking a habit or changing is not making the same choice that you did the day before. And the moment you decide to make a different choice, get ready because you're going to feel uncomfortable. You're actually leaving the known familiar self. And when you step out and you're no longer doing the same thing or making the same choice or having the same experience or feeling the same emotions or hanging with the same people, your body is craving <laughs> what it's used to. So the body yeah. starts telling the brain because it wants you to return back to the same same state says, come on, Lucas, you can start tomorrow. Look, so-and-so's going, it's going to be fun. Everybody's going to be there. You, you know, it's, it's pub night, you know, my God, I'm going to, okay. And that your body telling your brain, Hey, we want to have the same experience to feel the same emotion. Mm -hmm. The body actually is telling the brain to think the same way, to make the same choice, to do the same thing, to create the same experience, to feel the same feeling, and the person stays the same. So then in order for a person to break that state, they have to be willing to be uncomfortable, and the body starts craving. And the, when the body starts craving, if the body is stronger than the mind then the person will make the same choice and return back to the same, um, the same habit. So a habit is a redundant set of automatic, unconscious thoughts, behaviors, and emotions that's acquired through repetition. A habit is when you've done something so many times that your body actually knows how to do it better than your conscious mind. It becomes automatic and it's subconscious. So a lot of choices that people make on a regular basis or subconscious or unconscious choices, they think they're making the choice consciously, but actually it's the body that's making the choice instead of the mind. So I, then- I, Sorry to just jump in here, but that really reminds me of of cigarettes and smoking and this this thing with, I was quite addicted to nicotine for, for a while and I only stopped once I feel I genuinely told myself with, with the most firm intention and I really like the way you- you phrase that in your in your writing this this firm intention where you have to convince yourself that you're going to quit and i feel that smoking for example is something that almost happens unconsciously where you light another cigarette and then light another one and i think that stopping cigarettes i feel like your teachings could be could be helpful for for someone who's struggling to to quit such a habit sure sure and and i and 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 you can make that choice to change in one moment and it takes a firm intention. And that's when you make up your mind, when you say that this is it. I don't care who's gonna be at the pub environment. I don't care how I feel, body. I don't care 
how long it takes, I'm going to stop. And when you make that decision with such firm intention, that the amplitude of that choice carries a level of energy that causes your body to respond to your mind, that choice that you're making in that moment is an experience that you'll never forget. And many people will say, I remember exactly where I was, the time of day it was, who I was with when I made up my mind to change. And the stronger the emotion you feel to make that change, the more you remember the choice. And it takes that thought and that feeling, that image and that emotion, and that stimulus and response that's actually conditioning the body into a new biology. It's actually causing the body to respond to the mind. And the event becomes a moment in time that you never forget. And that's exactly how we create a long-term memory. The stronger the emotion you have from some experience, the more you remember the event. But now this is an inward experience and you got to come out of your resting state. And when you come out of your resting state, that's the moment the body's getting new information and the body is precognitive. In other words, it's always spying on the brain. And if you're sitting on your couch saying, oh yeah, I'm going to stop this habit or I'm going to stop this and you don't come out of your resting state, the body knows you're lying. The body knows you're going to do the exact same thing you always do. But many people wait for crisis, for trauma, for disease, for diagnosis, for loss. In some way, they're waiting for something to, to get really bad where they finally make up their mind to change. Why wait? You know, why wait? If you know better, an addiction is when you, you know something is not good for you and you do it anyway. That's an addiction. An addiction is something where you think you can't stop it on some level. And yet the current human, the, the, the human drama is wait for the crisis, wait for it to get so bad that you can't go back to business as usual and make the change. And, and you don't have to do that. Yeah. I think you're so right about the kind of positive emotion as well being added on to that firm intention. And in the case of addiction, we're talking about this is all negative. One of the examples I love from negative in the sense of getting rid of something. What I love, one of the examples in your book, and this is where your thoughts are really grounded in science is the example of piano playing and of mental rehearsal. And what you're saying about the body being precognitive, what you just said is the perfect example of that spying on the brain. And, you know, even thinking about um, some sort of, piece that you're going to be playing. I don't know. I'm not a piano player, but Bach or whatever, whatever people play is, do is, is it, almost we, as effective. We, we do it all the time. It's called mental rehearsal. Now just think about anybody who does anything really well. I don't care if you have a, a, a friend in your life that plays the guitar, that just really knows how to play or uh, an actor or an actress of an athlete, um, a dancer. Uh, it doesn't matter. Anybody who gets really good at something spends a lot of time rehearsing their moves. They just do. So the research that's been done on that, and, and this is kind of interesting. You take a group of people that never played the piano before and you divide them into two different categories. And in the first group of people, you do a brain scan on them before they start the, the activity and you teach them one-handed scales and chords. And they come and they practice two hours a day for five days. And then they scan their brain at the end of five days and lo and behold, the act of playing the piano actually grows new circuits on the opposite side of their brain. Well, there's no magic there. Learn something new. Learning is making new connections. Get your body involved. Get your body involved. You're going to have an experience. Experience enriches the brain. Pay attention to what you're doing. You've got to pay attention. 
and repeat it over and over again, firing and wiring, and you're gonna assemble new neural architecture. There's no magic there. Take another group of people, do a brain scan on them, and then have them close their eyes. And for two hours a day for five days, mentally rehearse those scales and chords in their mind, playing them over and over again. At the end of five days, they have the same structural changes in their brain as the people who are physically playing the piano. Now that means when you're truly present, the brain does not know the difference between the real life experience of playing the piano and what you're imagining. Now the brain is typically a record of the past. Everything you've learned and experienced is wired in your brain. But now you are priming the brain to be a map to the future. How do we know that? Because the brain looks like they already had the experience. The brain looks like they've been playing the piano for the last five days and they never lifted a finger. Now, why is that important? Well, it's, it's important because if you take those people and you put them in front of a piano and they'll sit down, they've never played before, they can play those scales and chords as if they were playing for the last five days. They've primed their brain for the act. Now, if you keep doing it over and over again, the hardware that they're installing becomes more like a software program and it becomes more automatic. So now forget the piano player. Let's just talk about the person who has uh, difficulty in their life with uh, an ex-relationship or with a coworker or with a parent, and they keep reacting and responding and behaving in the same way, okay? If I wanted to change uh, whatever it was, it would make sense then if I close my eyes and say, what am I going to do in this situation? How am I going to be different if I, if I go into this, this circumstance? And they start rehearsing the act. They start installing the circuitry. Why is that beneficial? Because they actually have hardware in place to use. <laughs> and then all I have to do is get their behaviors now to match their intentions. If they don't rehearse, they have no hardware in place and they'll default back to the old person. Okay, so mental rehearsal changes the brain. What about the body? Take a group of men. Uh, the research was done at Cleveland Clinic. Have them come for an hour a day for two weeks. Test their muscles, uh, bicep strength, before they learn this activity. Close their eyes. And for an hour a day for two weeks, they mentally rehearse curling uh, a dumbbell. And they add the emotional component of harder, stronger, more intense. Two weeks later, there's a 13.5 increase in muscle strength. They never lifted a weight. Now, the body is responding to the mind by thought alone. Now, why is that important? Well, because the body has to get a new signal and new information. And it's so objective in the process that when you emotionally add the component, the body actually is believing it's having the experience. That's it's incredible, right? So the person who has a chronic health condition that's doing their meditations to, to, to make changes and to, and, and to change so they can heal. If they're doing their meditation an hour a day and they have less pain and they have less fatigue and they're sleeping better, but their blood values are still the same, their, their scans are not changing, they go to the next level. I got to get so good at doing this with my eyes closed in my meditation, I got to do it with my eyes open. I'm going to wait one hour of a good meditation against 15 hours of reacting and responding as the same person. Oh my God, let me rehearse how I'm going to be in certain circumstances in my mind so that I don't default and I can stay in the state with my eyes open. And that's when it gets to be really exciting. That's when the person is actually overcoming the old self and becoming a new self, believing in a possibility, behaving that way, and ultimately becoming it. The muscle example. I mean, I'm going to have to start using that. But um, what I what, what I love about that example and the way that you use it in the book is 
how the kind of the science is kind of pure data. And I think what you do is add a structure behind that and it's, it becomes explanatory and people become able to apply it. And one of the structures that you use to describe this, this phenomenon of mental rehearsal is attraction and attracting the future that you'd like. Now it's a, it's a slightly different, but there's one study, which you mentioned in your book, which I'd love to bring up. And if that's all right, I'll describe and then you explain, because I think you, you'll do it a lot better than I, and I'm going to butcher this name, but it's Poeh that you mentioned in your book, the study of the baby Rene chicks. Pioche. Pioche. Rene Pioche. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we'll cut that out, I guess. But, <laughs> so Rene in this Pioche, study, yes. yeah, Rene Pioche, in this study you describe when baby chicks are first born, the kind of first moving a seemingly animate thing around them that they see, they think of as being their mother. And in the study, there's two different sets of chicks, one of whom already has their biological mother or or the human, whoever it may be, and are placed in front of this moving robot. Now they can't access it, it's within a closed box, but they're up watching it. And the robot is instructed to move completely at random. And if you watch a graph, it moves completely at random around the box because they they have their mother, so they're they're not calling for it. In the next study, sorry, in the next part of the study, the next set of chicks, this is their first interaction with an animate thing in the world and they take it to be their mother. And what I find still, despite believing it, still completely insane is that this robot, which is programmed, ends up in their half of the box. Now, if you don't mind, I'd like you to explain it because like I say, you'll do a better (laughs) job than I would. Okay, so so one of the things about... um... Uh, juvenile vertebrates, you know, chickens we use as an example, is that they imprint. And when they imprint, they imprint to this, to the, to the hen. And, and that's how they create bonding. That's a very limbic brain phenomenon, right? And so the first few days of their exposure to the, to the hen causes them to form this kind of bond. And so they follow the the, the, the hen around, um, the, the hen takes them to different places. They learn how to eat. You know, there's a lot of things that happen. So, so what they were, what they decided to do was to create a robot, dress it up like a hen. And this robot is programmed, uh, like a random event generator to turn 50% of the time to the left and 50% of the time to the right. Now it's random, so it's not gonna be right, left, right, left, right, left. That wouldn't be random, it'd be right, 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 left, 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 right, left, right, 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 right. But if you keep tossing a coin, it always comes out to 50%. The more you do it, the more it's 50%. So what they do is they take the random event generator and they set it in an arena. And uh, without any any um, connection to the baby chicks, just just as an example, they put the the random event generator in this arena without any baby chicks, without any exposure to them, just to see how it would work. And as you would expect, it turns left fifty percent of the time, right fifty percent of the time. And if you were to measure it, you'd see it kind of cover the whole entire space. Okay, hatch the baby chicks put the random event generator in the presence of the baby chicks, take the baby chicks, put it outside the arena, on one side of the arena, turn the random event generator on, instead of the random event generator covering the whole arena, the actions, the movements of the random event generator, 100% of the time is on the, on the side of the arena where the baby chicks are actually in the cage. So the intentions of the baby chicks and the emotion of bonding to that random event generator caused the action of the random event generator to move in the direction of the baby chicks. Now, those baby chicks have tiny, 
teeny weeny little brains <laughs> and teeny weeny little hearts, right? And if they can cause a random event generator to move in the direction of that arena, how powerful are our thoughts and our emotions and attracting things to us in our lives? And, and so um, if you're in the process of creating a new life, then it must mean then you must have a very clear intention of what that new life would look like. And that's a function of the brain. And, and the brain is the architect. It is the builder. And when you get a wild idea about something that you want to create or something you want to experience, your brain, eh, the forebrain switches on, the frontal lobe switches on, and it's a creative center. And you ask the question, what would it be like to be wealthy? What would it be like to be healthy? What would it be like to be happy? What would it be like to be traveling for a living? And your brain actually starts looking for answers. And the frontal lobe begins to, to access the association circuits in the brain that are connected to that question. And so when you get a clear vision in your mind of what that could look like, that's called intention. Now, that's only, that, that, that is only one half of the equation. Because that intention is sterile without the energy or the emotion of the experience. So if you're truly beginning to imagine whatever that future is, and you start falling in love with that future before it happens, you start feeling grateful before that experience happens, it takes a function of the heart. And we've discovered along with other institutions that the heart has a very profound effect on our biology. So marry the clear intention, a function of a coherent brain, with an elevated emotion, a function of a coherent heart, and you do that properly and you start to change your energy. Is it possible then you start to see effects in your life? You know, things start coming to you instead of going and getting them. Somehow you start seeing these synchronicities, these opportunities, these coincidences that begin to mysteriously appear in your life. Now, when that occurs, it kind of wakes you up like, huh, it's kind of weird that that kind of happened. That kind of synchronicity is weird. Like, I didn't really plan that. I didn't really expect that. That's the awakening, right? To prove to you how powerful you really are and in fact can begin to create events in your life. And instead of going out and going and getting them or having to do things to get them, somehow they seem to come to us. And, and we use Piyash's example because it really is a clear example of uh, uh, if baby chicks can do that, uh, I'm certain that we can do the same. Yeah. Like I say, I think it's your... Piosh is an, an insane experiment, but I think it's your explanations which really pull through. And one of those, and I want you to help me clarify a little bit on this, this is the part where people seem to take you more as a mystic and yet you base it in science. Just to help me understand, most matter is ultimately condensed frequency and we can, in space time, and these elevated emotions, for example, are an example of a higher frequency as you categorize it. And accessing the highest frequencies through the pineal gland allows you to get to time space, which is um, another realm, you might say, purely a frequency without this condensation into matter. And you have all possible futures there. And that's where the attraction happens in this other realm, when you manage to escape yourself and you manage to attract the future that you would like. So tell me if I've missed anything, but I think that's a rough, <laughs> I think, you know, there's wow. a lot to it, but I think that's a rough characterization yeah. of your, of your position. Uh, well, there's a lot to unpack there, but but um, 
if you look around at the physical world around you, um, you look at objects, you look at bodies, you look at people, you look at things, you look at places. Um, in this three-dimensional reality, everything has form and structure. It's material, right? And we experience this three-dimensional reality with our senses, okay? So pick any object, any object that your senses are perceiving seems separate from you. So our senses fool us into the illusion of separation in the three-dimensional reality. And everything is height and width, width and depth. And if you, if you don't see it, it doesn't exist, right? So, okay, let's take uh, anything that's physical and material. And what are the basic building blocks of that physical form or that physical structure? They're called atoms, Turns out atoms are 99.999% nothing. They're frequency, they're information, and they're 0.00001% form and structure. And so we're perceiving a very small percentage of reality, if you think about it, and don't exclude yourself from that, ex that equation. The probability that we're seeing the truth of reality is next to zero. So, so our senses fool us into the illusion of separation. And because everything appears separate in three-dimensional reality, the way we get what we want is we have to do something. You want to get a degree, you got to go to school, you got to study, you got to learn. It takes time. You want to become wealthy. You want to become healthy. You got to change your diet. You got all these things. And so in the plane of demonstration, the plane of doing three-dimensional reality, we notice that we want something because we're separate from it. You want the new car, you want the vacation, you want the new relationship. It's because you don't have it. And so the brain goes, I don't have this and I want to have it. So the brain starts dreaming of having it. And then you start figuring out ways to go and get it. I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to get a second job. Uh, I'm going to save money. I'm going to cheat a little bit, steal a little bit, do whatever I have to do to finally arrive at that dream. So the whole entire time until that dream actually appears, we're experiencing the separation of not having it. So when the experience finally comes, the emotion from that experience takes away the lack or separation from not having it. And that's kind of the game in three-dimensional reality. You get really good at it. You can study, you can learn from your mistakes. Um, you can get a lot of good training. Uh, you can, you know, you can make your way and you can become successful at gathering things or having experiences in three-dimensional reality. Okay, that's one way. Okay, Einstein said the field, the quantum field, that energetic field is the sole governing agency of the particle. He says the field controls the particle. He didn't say the particle controls the particle. He says the information in the field is actually controlling the particle. Okay, so what if you could create from the field instead of from, the part, uh, from matter? Okay, how would you do that? Okay, well then... All of our attention is immersed in three-dimensional reality. Uh, if you think about it, all your attention is on your body, it's on people in your life, objects, your cell phone, your computer, your, your bicycle, your scooter, um, where you live, where you work, where you, where you go to school, the classes you go to, where you sleep, the pubs you like to go to, the friends you have. That, cre that, that creates our identity in three-dimensional reality. Okay, so what we discovered is that when you get really stressed and you get really out of balance, the arousal of the stress hormone causes you to put more attention on your body. That's what survival does. If you're being chased by T-Rex, you better be thinking about your body. The arousal of the stress hormones in survival causes us, our senses to get heightened and we start putting more of our attention on our environment, all those objects, all those people, all those places. 
the arousal of stress hormones causes us to be to be obsessive about time. If you're being chased by T-Rex and you're at one point and you want to get to another point, you're thinking about how much time you have to get there. So the body, the environment, and time. So then that quantum field, that is that invisible field of energy that exists beyond this space and beyond this time that you can't perceive with your senses is real. And in fact, it is governing everything physical and material. And the most stable form of energy, the slowest frequency that we perceive with our senses is matter. Okay, well, there are other frequencies that go all the way right up to that zero point field, that that singularity, that source, that oneness, that wholeness, where there's no separation. That's where everything physical and material comes from. So is it possible that the human being with our consciousness can connect to that field and energy? And we discover that when people move out of stress and survival and they begin to take all of their attention off their body, of all the people in their life, all the objects and things, all the places they need to go and, and, uh, and where they, even where they're sitting and not thinking about what the, what's going to happen in the next moment or what happened in the past moment, they can settle into the present moment. And we teach them this, that if they can become nobody, no one, no thing, nowhere, and no time and take their attention off of everything physical, everything material, everything known in their life, and go from a narrow focus on focusing in, on everything physical and material to broadening your focus and putting your attention on energy and frequency. The act of doing that begins to change the brain in a very, very holistic way. The brain starts to become less modulated, less compartmentalized, and starts functioning in a more synchronized and holistic state. And the act of doing that actually changes the person's brain waves. Uh, to get beyond their thinking analytical mind. Now that is the door between the conscious mind and the subconscious mind is the analytical mind. So by changing your brain waves, you start dropping down in frequency and the brain starts getting more creative and the voice in your head stops talking to you. And when that occurs then, now you're getting into the operating system where true change can take place. So then in the quantum field, everything's connected. Everything's energy, everything's frequency, uh, everything's vibration, everything's consciousness, everything's information. There's nothing physical. There's nothing material. There's nothing you can perceive with your senses. In fact, it's nothing. (laughs) It's actually nothing. So take away every object, every person, every body, everything, every place. Take away the earth, take away the moon, take away the planets, uh, take away the sun, take away the light from the sun, the light from the stars, the stars, galaxies. You're left with a vacuum, that void. That vacuum in that void is is rich in frequency. It's rich in energy. And and every thought in that realm has a frequency. So if the person can abandon their identity and become pure consciousness, and they can marry that clear intention with a coherent brain, combined with an elevated emotion, a coherent heart, the elevation in frequency that's created begins to change the person's energy. And when there's a vibrational match between their energy and some potential that exists in the quantum field, they start to notice that they don't have to go anywhere to get what they want. As I said, all of a sudden they start to draw experiences to them. And the more coherent the brain and the more coherent the heart, the greater the Wi-Fi signal. In other words, They have a signal to connect to that potential. So stress creates incoherence in the brain and stress creates incoherence in the heart. So now you don't have a Wi-Fi signal. Your brain is incoherent. Your heart is incoherent. You can't connect to the field. So we teach people how to begin to create that kind of 
orderliness that takes place in their in their in their nervous system. And when they do, the benefits of that then are seeing the opportunities that begin to appear in their life and the ultimate goal in creating from the field instead of from matter is shortening the distance between the thought of what we want and the experience of having it. And when we create from the field instead of from matter, we could actually begin to alter the amount of time it takes for our dreams to appear in our lives. I see. Um, I'm wary of the time and would love to get to the Q&As of the audience. But before that, I wanted to ask a final question. And I'd like to push back a little bit uh, as somebody who might be seen as a bit more of a skeptic. I'm, I'm curious if it would be possible to say that maybe the stress causing incoherence in the brain could be much more rooted in psychology and if it's if in what kind of um research is is present in terms of connecting the pineal gland for example to the quantum realm versus the amount of scientific research that might not point to that direction i'm wondering how how you bring that as one like epistemological um system together okay um i'll see if i can answer this in in a very direct way that that isn't too time consuming. Okay. If you study vertebrates, pit, homing pigeon, chameleon, if you study any vertebrate, you'll see that they all have pineal glands, and inside their pineal glands are tiny little crystals, and those crystals are very sensitive to electromagnetism. A homing pigeon can actually know exactly where to go, how to migrate, or any, any, any bird can migrate because it's picking up the electromagnetic field of the earth. And that's how it knows how, it's how to move in directions. A chameleon that feels infrared frequency on that kind of space in the back of their head where there's no skull, it's kind of a soft area, is picking up the infrared frequency and the pineal glands actually releasing melanin and it causes it to become camouflaged, right? Or a little turtle in the, in the coast of Mexico is born in a certain part of the, the beach, goes out into the ocean, migrates, walks along the sand, gets crawls out into the ocean, comes back to that very point and lays their eggs in the same place they were born because it has a GPS. And so uh, other vertebrates have it, and, and we have a pineal gland, and it has crystals in it, and those crystals are there, and they've been there for a long time. And there's a principle in biology called endowment, which means if you don't use it, in time, nature loses it, but yet our pineal gland has, still has those crystals and they're dormant, then it's a latent system in the brain. So what we discovered, Lucas, is that when people begin to dial down their, their brain waves and they begin to open their awareness and they take their attention off their body, their environment and time, they take their attention off of everything known and they can linger in that void, in that vacuum without a name, without a past, without a culture, without a gender, without a diet, without a profession. Uh, and, and they can linger in that place and they keep opening their awareness as they slow their brain waves down from beta brain waves, thinking brain waves, to alpha brain waves, creative states. And they begin to open the door between the conscious mind and the subconscious mind. If they can slow their brain waves down into theta. Now, theta is a hypnotic state. Uh, uh, when a person is in theta, they're in hypnosis. And when you're in hypnosis, you're very suggestible to information. 
And suggestibility is your ability to accept information, believe in information, surrender to information, connect to information without ever analyzing if it's the truth or not. And that's exactly what programs a person to do certain things or the autonomic nervous system to change. All right. So the person now can get so relaxed that their body's in a light sleep while they're conscious and awake. And they're suggestible to information and they're in theta. We discovered that if a person can get to that state and they're suggestible to information and they're in a meditation and their senses are not plugging them into the environment, they're not seeing anything because their eyes are closed. The music in the room is filling the space. They're not eating, they're not tasting, they're not smelling, they're not experiencing or feeling with their body, but they're suggestible and their nervous system is coherent. Something amazing happens. There's only one other place uh, where you can get information and that's frequency. All frequency carries information. The more coherent the autonomic nervous system is and the person is relaxed in their heart and awake in their brain, all of a sudden, all we start to see the brain connect. And when it connects, it goes from that theta state into very high states of arousal. And that arousal is causing the brain to go into gamma brainwave patterns. When they're in gamma, Gamma is super consciousness. It is super awareness. It is an altered state. Now, the amount of gamma that we're capturing in the brain is not a little. It's not a lot. It's a supernatural amount. And it's happening in the autonomic nervous system. What does that mean? Stress is autonomic dysregulation. This person is having an arousal that's causing autonomic regulation. The amount of coherence and the amount of energy in the autonomic nervous system in gamma is actually causing the body to connect to frequency and information. Now, what's the relevance of this? If we look at the scans of the people that are having this experience, the area around the pineal gland is very active. The radio receiver in the brain is all of a sudden connecting to frequency, but not frequency like we typically connect to, like your eye is perceiving the frequency or the wavelength of light that's bouncing off objects. And that's the only spectrum that we see. Look at the electromagnetic spectrum. It's a big spectrum. And we're getting this little sliver of red, orange, yellow, blue, green, indigo, violet. That's, that's the extent of the frequency that we're perceiving. And yet there's infinite frequencies beyond that. So now the quantum is a frequency that's faster than light, e equals mc squared. Anything that's material that's traveling at the speed of light turns into energy, disappears. Connect to energy that's, that's faster than the speed of light that frequency is carrying information. The pineal gland connects to that frequency. That frequency begins to inform matter with information. And the person all of a sudden activates that pineal gland and the pineal gland is a transducer. And what transducers do is it takes frequency or signals in the one form and turns it into another, just like a TV antenna, picking up a frequency and turning it into pictures and images. And so that third eye in the brain begins to release derivatives, a suite yeah. of metabolites that are upgrades of melatonin that fit in the same receptor sites, but all of a sudden cause a very profound unknown mystical experience. And since experience enriches the brain, and it does, and experience produces an emotion, that arousal is not fear. The arousal is not pain. The arousal is not anger or aggression that's usually created from this, the stress hormones. The arousal is ecstasy. The arousal is bliss. The arousal is love. And in fact, <laughs> it's difficult to give a word to describe whatever that is. But most people say, it's like I forgot and now I remember that I was always connected. And when the person comes back to their senses, 
since experience enriches circuitry, their spectrum of what they can perceive in reality is broadened because their inner experience changes their experience of the outside world. Before I ask my final question, anyone who has questions from Dr. Joe's youth community can pop those into the chat and we'll choose maybe one or two. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of time. Choose one or two and Dr. Joe can quickly reply to those. But just on that last note, Dr. Joe, if I were to have a desire and match that frequency, but that desire would be incoherent in at least the physics sense. So it produces something which which is contrasting. So two frequencies, which if both happen to be true, would create an incoherent reality. How would we solve this this issue? Because I'd be technically getting into the same frequency, but, but some others have to be a limit. Um, well, uh, this is a long conversation, um, and <laughs> it's a little bit more complex, but I will okay. tell you this. Okay. Uh, when there's stress hormones activated in the brain, um, and you're shifting your attention when you're uh, under the gun of the stress hormones, you're shifting your attention to one person, to another person, to another thing, to another problem, to another person, to another thing, to your cell phone, to another object. Every one of those elements has a neurological network in your brain because it's known to you. And the arousal causes the brains to start firing these compartments and those compartments become modulated and they no longer talk to each other. And so now it's a house divided against itself and people need something to take away that dissonance, that incoherence. So then as the brain starts to become more coherent, those different compartments of the brain that were once subdivided start unifying. Bigger neighborhoods, bigger communities begin to begin to um, um, dance at the same frequency. Sustain that state for an extended period of time, you'll see global coherence in the entire brain. Now, when that occurs, what sinks in the brain links in the brain, and the brain begins to become more coherent. Now, why is that important? Because if you take coherent waves and they begin to interfere, what do they create? They create higher amplitudes and higher amplitudes mean higher energy. And those waves then begin to interfere and they create higher amplitudes. And you start creating this phenomenon called resonance in the brain, standing waves of energy. And we've seen this in our scans. Some people have delta waves carrying theta waves, theta waves carrying alpha waves, alpha waves carrying beta waves, beta waves carrying high beta waves, high beta carrying ga uh, gamma waves. The entire brain is functioning in a state of harmonics. And now, instead of 4%, 5% of 6% of the brain firing when you're thinking, and you have over 20% of the brain really beginning to form a, uh, a very holistic connections, micro clusters of neurons that are firing separately, compartmentalized, start forming macro clusters of connections, and that begins to exchange information on a greater level in the brain. The person who's having that experience is feeling more whole uh, than they've felt in a very long time. So the, sus the sustaining of coherence over a period of time begins to cause the brain to build energy, just like in the heart. Sustaining coherence in the heart causes the person to have higher amplitudes of energy in their heart. What does that mean? That's not a little love that they're feeling. That's a lot of love that they're feeling. Measure their blood and the chemistry 
that goes along with that is elevated levels of oxytocin. What is that? The person is actually feeling love. And oxytocin begins to signal a host of chemicals that causes blood to move into the heart. That's energy. And the person starts to open their heart and they feel more in love with life. So the person moves out of survival uh, into these elevated states. Now, there's so many rabbit holes I can go down with this. But what I can tell you more than anything else is that it takes practice. And it takes practice. And it's just like hitting a golf ball or a tennis ball or dancing the salsa. Once you understand the formula and you practice the formula, um, you start to notice those changes. And it's like it's like trying to tell someone what a mango tastes like. Mm. You just mm. got to eat it. And so... The philosophy then, void of any experience, is just a dinner conversation. Having the experience then changes the understanding of that philosophy. Yeah, it's uh, there's just so much to unpack, and unfortunately, we don't have the time to unpack it all. I mean, one of, one of the things that occurs to me, and unfortunately, if that's okay, we'll move we'll move on from it. But maybe it's just something for for listeners to think about is incoherence between different people who desire, let's say I'm on one frequency that, for example, I want to be, uh, the Oxford champion of debating. And I managed to tune into that frequency and Lucas wants to be the Oxford champion of debating. And he manages to tune into that frequency. How do, how do we, how do we resolve that universe? No, 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 listen, listen. Um, it's not just tuning into that frequency. I don't want you mm -hmm. sitting on your couch waiting for your wealth to come. That's, this is, that's not how it works. Yeah. I mean, there's an element in three dimensional reality where you ha actually have to keep one foot in the real world and one foot in the quantum world. In other words, you can't, if you want to be the debate champion, you got to debate. And yeah. you got to use your mind and you got to use that, you know, you got to study and you got to do all those things. That's, that's part of it. That's the skill. That's the, that's the practicum. You still have to do it. And yet a person who can tune into energy and information may have different ways to see things that are different than another person, but they're not going to create being the Oxford champion without actually doing anything. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's. That's a panacea that's, 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 that's impractical. And, that, and that's not what this is about. I still do a lot of things. I still take care of my body. I still work out. I still eat well. I still have companies I have to manage and people I have to, to, to interact with. Challenges all the time. But, but, but if I want a possibility to change in my life or another, another opportunity, then yeah, I'm going to use that, that principle. I'm going to use those principles. So, so yeah. you got to keep a foot in both worlds because I don't, I, I don't want it to be, I don't want it to be uh, spirituality in that sense. I want it to be practical, right? I'm a pragmatist and the practical application means you own it, right? You, when you, when you realize your dream and, and you're still doing things. If you're you're still stepping towards your dream, you still got to go to college. You still got to study. You still got to do those things. But your vision would be something in your future. Uh, you still have to do things to arrive at that vision. If you're not, then you don't believe it's then you don't believe it's a reality. Mm -hmm. It's it's actually super interesting that you've moved on to that because that was pretty much the question that I was going to pick. Um, from the beginning Q&A, and that's from Amy. So Amy, thank you for tuning into the podcast and thank you for your question. And her question is, how do you navigate the balance between intention setting and taking practical actions? And I guess your answer with one foot in each is there's no balance because they're different realms. You can do both. You can work as hard as you possibly want to become the Oxford debating champion, but you can also 
tune into the gratitude, et cetera. There's elevated emotions and the frequency, which brings that about. And so you can do both at the same time, basically. So Amy, thank you for that question. Then it's already been answered. Excellent. So. Excellent. Yeah. I'll, um, I'll take another question from the audience. And unfortunately this might be the last question that Dr. Joe is able to answer just in terms of time. And Maria from the audience asks, Dr. Joe, would we lose touch with the mystic if our meditation became a sort of habit or, or does it mean, or is there, if there's a clear intention before the meditation, does that mean that there's still room for this mystic side? Yeah. So if you look up the word mystical and I have, it means unknown, right? So, I mean, I love unknown experiences. That's the thing that keeps me excited in life. Right. So, 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 so any experience that is unknown is a mystical experience and just turns out that we we have a lot of experiences ahead of us that we're unaware of. So, so for me personally, I'll talk about myself. Um, when a meditation becomes routine and it's lost its luster, it's lost its glitter, it's lost its, its inspiration. And that's because it has become routine in some way. And I forgot what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And so there just becomes another thing that I'm in the habit of doing. When it gets to that point, we got to go back to studying the, 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 the information. You got to start reviewing epigenetics and understand if I feel this emotion, if I really feel this emotion, am I literally signaling genes ahead of the environment? That's what that means. Okay, well then when I feel this emotion, I'm going to have the intention to signal those genes. Better outcome. It'll work better. If I open my heart and the heart has a magnetic field, and if I'm beyond space and time, can I draw my future to me with my heart? Okay, when I feel this emotion, I'm going to remember that I'm drawing my future to me with my heart. Okay, if I open my awareness and keep lingering in nothing, I'm doing this because I want to create more coherence in my brain. Yes, I want to begin to get beyond my analytical mind and slow my brain waves down, and that's why I'm doing it. When we assign meaning to the act and, 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 and we review the, the information and then the knowledge, we, 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 we enjoy doing it. But when we forget, and it's so much easier to forget this information than to remember it. It's just not part of the program of three-dimensional reality. So when it loses um, its luster, it's because we forgot um, what we're doing and why we're doing it and go back, either change it up go back and study. For me, I love getting in my think box before I ever sit down and do a meditation. And that is, what am I not going to think about? Who am I not going to think about? What memories am I going to stay away from? What things do I know that I have to do today? Excuse me, the list goes on forever. I'm just going to stay away from all of that. What emotions am I not going to feel? You know, let me just get really clear on what I'm not going to do. Let me just get that really clear because I, I don't want to, I don't want to default. Okay. So what am I doing here? Why, why am I doing this meditation? I'm going to review what I, what I'm, why am I doing this? I want to get my think box all worked out. What's my intention? What, how am I going to feel? Okay. What can I, let me just practice. Let me just get in that state. Okay. And I get, I, I get in my think box, but because when I get in my play box, there's no thinking. If I'm thinking when I'm in my play box, I, I'm not prepared. Right. And if I'm not doing it with any intention, uh, I don't have, I don't have direction, right? The intention is the direction. The emotion is the energy that drives you to that future. So it's a constant revision. It's a constant revision, getting the think box, working it out, getting the play box, and then experimenting with it playfully and playfully saying, okay, okay, Lucas or Ali, I'm going to really just take 20 minutes a day. I'm going to change my energy. I'm going to have an intention. I'm going to feel the emotion. 
I'm going to remember what this emotion feels like. I'm going to remember my intention. I'm going to feel differently the whole entire day. If this is the truth, I'm going to experiment with it. Let me just see if if anything changes. Let me just see if something changes in my life. Whoa, when it changes, you're like, okay, I'm going to do it again. Mm. (laughs) I'm going to do it again this time and see what happens. Ah, it happened. I can relate to that. This is weird. Yeah. Ah, I'm creating now. I'm somehow creating in my life. I'm going to do it again. It's not like you're something that you have to do. It's something that you enjoy doing because you don't want the magic. You don't want the mystery to end. And, and so the unknown is, is something is mystical because if it's, it's, it's a cult, it's hidden, it's not known to us. And so how many of those experiences exist? Infinite. And so that those, those experiences exist beyond our senses. The side effect of what happens in our life as a result of being a creator proves to us then that somehow we have an effect on our destiny. And so then the the understanding of that and the realization of that causes the person to want to always be creating in their life. And so one foot in the real world, one foot in the quantum world, still step towards your future, but but add a little but add a little magic to it by by seeing if you can influence outcomes in a in a greater way. Thank you Dr. Joe. I will say for all of those listening right now uh, in the live community, stay tuned. Uh, Please do follow us on Instagram at The Loaf Pod and subscribe to our YouTube channel. This episode will be out very soon, I think in December on all platforms. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Joe and his beliefs, you should definitely pick up Becoming Supernatural so we can, because obviously this is a very, very deep topic. And obviously while Oli and I like to like to push back on your metaphysical commitments. And I hope you enjoyed that we managed to get a little bit of a debate going. And we obviously like to consistently question things. I think the best way to do it is to keep questioning, keep listening, keep reading. Dr. Joe, do you have any final comments for our audience today? No, the only comment is try it out. Don't try believe out. me. <clears throat> don't, don't, I'm not, in fact, a lot of the things I'm saying, I'm not saying the the, the data is actually saying it. Our data shows uh, that, that, um, that it's possible. So try it out for yourself, experiment with it, have fun with it and see if you can produce outcomes. And, 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 and if you have doubt, um, learn the information to remove the doubt. That's, uh, so that, so that you can apply better. Brilliant. Dr. Joe Dispenza, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been the Loaf Podcast signing off.